0: Hello, and welcome to Minda Dialogue, episode number 176. This interview is with Russ Shaw, serial entrepreneur, angel investor, and founder of the Tech London Advocates, which is a community of over 2,300 volunteers keen to promote London as a thriving centre for tech and entrepreneurialism. In this discussion, we look at the changing role of Facebook for breaking news after the events in Paris, the importance of women in tech, how big companies and small agile entrepreneurs can better collaborate and integrate, as well as the right balance of profiles for one's board of directors. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset. That's M Y N D S E T.com where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Minta Dialogue. Today, piped in from not far across from London, Russ Shaw, who founded the Tech London Advocates. So tell us who you are, what you do, and what's your mindset, Russ? Welcome to the show.
1: Right. Well, thank you, Minta. Very good to to be here and be part of your uh, podcast. Um, So as you said, I set up an advocacy group called Tech London Advocates to do two things. One, promote London's emerging technology sector, and, and two, more critically, deal with the issues and challenges that we see on the horizon that could get in the way of creating a a, a vibrant tech city for for London. Um, In terms of my mindset, wow, my mindset's, I guess, a bit all over the place. I mean, very much in Tech London Advocates, it's about being open, being transparent, pulling more and more people into the group who are passionate and enthusiastic about what's going on in London tech. It's about Connecting with other tech hubs around the world, and, and, and making sure that we have good relationships with people, whether they're in Silicon Valley, in Bangalore, in Beijing, uh, across Europe, from Berlin to Paris to Copenhagen to Stockholm. Um, you know, Paris is also obviously very interesting in light of what's happened uh, over this past weekend. So, very much that's top of mind. And in terms of my mindset, that's probably. Not too far from the surface either. I can imagine. Well, we're recording this on the 16th of November at the end of the day. That's
0: the Monday. It's going to go live on Sunday. So we'll have – there's a little bit of a a time gap. But, hey, Russ, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about since I had my daughter with me who's 16 and I was chatting with my son who's 18 in Montreal – and we were talking about how the news came around. And for her, it was Saturday morning. Uh, they were oblivious on Friday night. The school chose to keep them that way. Thought that was rather good. For me, I came across it on Facebook. And I think that Facebook did some remarkable things. How did you come across the news? And how did you live it as a 50-something
1: kind of guy? <laughs> yes. Um, well, it was, it was funny for me because I had literally just walked in the front door. I'd spent the day in Copenhagen at a, at a board meeting. So I was pretty, pretty knackered. I'd been up at 4 a.m. And, um, you know, I do get alerts on my, my smartphone and I saw an alert come through that said, uh, um, mass shooting in Paris, you know, more information to follow, whatever. And I thought, Oh, wow, this is interesting. And then my, a bit like you, my, my eldest son who is, um, 22 is in Paris living there and, uh, he's on his third year, uh, doing a, a, overseas, uh, French program and, um, my immediate response was, okay, got the news alert. Let me text him. And, and Matthew is very, very good at responding. And literally a minute later, he responded back and said, Hey, you know, he's okay. Something very big is happening there. He didn't quite know what he was with some friends. They were at somebody's flat. So, um, at least I had the peace of mind. So oh. I immediately turned to my wife and said, look, this newsletter came through. I've just texted him. Um, And, you know, he's fine. And then obviously as the evening unfolded, you turn on the news, we had texts coming in, we had emails coming in. Everybody wanted to know how Matthew was doing. So um, Mm -hmm. it was quite an evening. And then we we managed to get to bed. And then by the time we woke up, you know, the the, the news really sunk in that this was, uh, you know, absolutely tragic and devastating situation so, um, so yeah it was it was technology, modern technology that immediately synced me in to, to what was going on and enabled me to respond so I was just so thrilled I could be connected to him so promptly to know that he was okay and in a relatively safe place um, So yeah that's how it unfolded.
0: It struck me uh, a number of things sort of during and then as I sort of thought about it afterwards, that a I didn't go to Twitter. To go and check out what's happening. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of wondered why that was why that was the case. And, and almost it was like, well, actually on Twitter, you kind of need to navigate and figure out the hashtags, and that's not happened yet. So mm-hmm. it was it was a little bit more convoluted for me to figure out. Whereas on Facebook, of course, since I have so many friends in Paris, yes. it, it came around. And it and and it sort of was a little bit not immediate. There was sort of like, oh well, I hope there's nobody at the Baracon you know so i was like well what's the why why is that guy all upset and then all of a sudden it, you know two more messages later i figured yes. it out and then what of course what facebook did is that they reacted to it in such a different way and 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 it was almost like because it's not about journalists like charlie Abdul, Yeah. this was sort of all the youth yes. and everybody and yeah. therefore it was this sort of all encompassing space in facebook
1: Yes. It, I mean, it was it was quite remarkable. And, and the whole campaign since then, you know, you see it, you know, everybody putting their profiles on the on the Tricolor, which is, you know, a real vote of support. And I, I, I think that's fantastic. You know, my, my son did use Facebook. What was nice is we did have friends say, look, you know, they could see that Matthew immediately got a message up saying he was OK. Um, You know, obviously what's happening there is very, very concerning, but not to worry about him. So, you know, friends did respond to say they had gone on to Facebook to, to, to see what was going on. I mean, for me you know, I guess everybody uses things a little bit differently. I didn't go onto Twitter. I didn't go onto Twitter until the next morning. I, you know, if if I'm looking for breaking news, my my two sources are the BBC and CNN. Mm -hmm. And I know that when thing, you know, every day I get a few alerts. So I know when something's breaking at that early stage, I will, I, I can then go onto Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is that I, that I need to do. But so many people were using it. And and it was just for me over the weekend, fascinating to look at Facebook and see what people, what friends, what families were doing to to, to show their their unity and and, and sign of support. So, um, you know, social media is and will continue to have a huge impact in terms of how this whole situation unfolds.
0: No doubt. Well, speaking of unfolding, Russ, and yes.
1: certainly in, in regards
0: to your position and your history and, and all the different kind of companies you've run. And on your boards of how do you think this event, I mean not necessarily differently from the others because it's not a comparative story, but how do you how do you think it should impact people who are running business today? What what sort of things should be going through their minds today?
1: I, mean, I think it is a it is an incredible reminder that we you know we are in a in an unstable world, and, and potentially getting more unstable as time as time goes on, um, you know I I always like to think, and I hope other business leaders are basically saying, look, it continues to be business as usual. I hope the French and, and Parisians kind of say, look, this this cannot get in the way of their day-to-day lives. We need to be more vigilant. We certainly need to have higher levels of, of security. We need to just, you know, take that extra bit of care to notice if anything unusual or suspicious is going on. But at the end of the day, we have to lead our lives as people. We have to run our businesses as business leaders. And that needs to continue because if we capitulate to that, then that's exactly what these these extremists want, and, and I, I would hate to see that happen. So, from a business point of view, it's business as usual. Make sure employees are are alert. Make sure that you're talking about this with your employees, you know, the the, the the people that I've spoken to just today. How are you doing? How are you coping with what's going on? Um, I, I think it's it's really important that we do talk openly about situations like this. You know, even you know, with my family last night, with my, my wife and I took our, our other two sons out for a meal and this was the topic of conversation. What did you think about it? You know, what did you respond to? So I think it's really important that we be open about it. I think we need to be prepared that more of this is going to happen. I think at some point, what probably worries me a bit is, you know, I think our, our civil liberties as, as Western society and, and being part of democracies um, could be under threat. And, and there might have to be a couple of trade-offs down the line in terms of making sure that we have a high degree of safety and security, but... Let's still make sure that we lead open, fulfilling democratic lives and, and getting that balance right. I think our leaders, not just our political leaders, but all kinds of leaders are going to have to grapple with because this is not going away anytime soon. All right. And I,
0: so when I, when I listen to you, I think about how entrepreneurs tend to speak what's on their sleeve. And it's, just sort of, it's more of them. Whereas yes. there is also a tendency... Especially in big business, to say what's politically correct, because there's the risk. Well, if I say something that's on my mind, a personal opinion, well, then it might be bad for shareholders, or it might be taken the wrong way. So how do you? How do you? I mean, isn't there isn't there sort of some better place where, as a leader, when we're in a company, we're able to actually express some kind of opinion, make some kind of concrete action? You know, there's a the conversation, but then also there's there's an exempt being exemplary and leading and 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 showing
1: the way yes it's it's tricky because i think lots of people have lots of different views and philosophies and you know that gets played out in the political arena and if you look at you know what's happening in in the uk or in france or in the us there are so many different opinions and views on how to deal with these situations you know my style over the years you know when i've when I've run teams is, is to kind of say, look, let's have open frank conversations. Um, and sometimes whether it's one-on-one or in small groups, come in, close the door, vent, share your views. But then let's figure out how we can be constructive. How do we make sure that if we've got a business to run, that yes, we have to be politically correct, but we also have to be shown that we're, we're being mindful, we're being respectful, that we're listening to what's going on, and we're addressing the situation. And I think in this instance, you know, for probably many French businesses, I think they're going to want to make sure that they they have the well-being of their employees top of mind, because, you know, 132 people have been killed, but an entire nation and beyond has been hugely shaken up by this. So I think. We all have to show each other that, yes, we're in business and it's competitive and we've got to do this and do that. But at the same time, we're human beings. And, you know, again, we need to help each other through this. And this might some people might not be that impacted by this and others might find this absolutely devastating. How do we make sure that we're having those conversations across the board? And, you know, when I deal with entrepreneurs, one of the things – that strikes me about entrepreneurs is for many of them, it's a very, very lonely job. Sometimes they're a one man or one woman show or they've got just a small group of people. They're working 14, 16 hours a day and finding somebody to talk to is a challenge. And I think this to, this situation just highlights to me how it, important it is to make sure that as an entrepreneur, you have uh, a way to talk about something like this with others. Mm. Um, you know, that comes back to our advocates group. We have many, many different working groups, and the, 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 the advocates in those groups get together quite regularly, and the conversations and the discussions that happen in those groups – is really incredible. And and sometimes I see entrepreneurs in them who you could tell, you know, they haven't left the office for a week and suddenly they feel like, God, they can just express their mind or their opinion on something. And that's good. And that's, you know, again, it's all all about talking, getting views out on the table, but, and I, I come back to the advocates group, how do we turn that into constructive grassroots actions that can make things for the better.
0: Mm. Well, so that's your—that's the philosophy of the techland advocates, right? Isn't it? It's yes. about actually making things happen. And <clears throat> give us some, uh, let's say, ideas as to how it came about. Uh, why you came up with this sort of private group? I mean, private mm-hmm. thinking group.
1: Sure. I think you know when I set this up. You know, if you go back, say, three years ago, and I, I when I got the idea for this, um, I saw. Um, our national government led by our prime minister actively promoting the tech sector in London. Um, And then I also saw our mayor, Boris Johnson doing the same thing. And And I thought, wow, you know, great that our national government and our city governments are out there promoting this. But what was missing for me was, you know, where is the network? Where is the group of private sector leaders coming together to have a consistent message about what's going on, but also coming together to say, we have to address issues, whether it's the lack of digital skills, focusing on the importance of immigration, um, you know, bringing more women into the technology sector, dealing with infrastructure issues. Um, How do we bring those folks together to say, look, we can get some things done so that we're not just out there talking about this, which is important, but we're showing that we're getting things done at a grassroots level. That makes us... uh, I think adds value to the to the voice that we have as an organization. So that's where the idea came from and you know this is and I always have to remind people you know I'm one person and this is now a network or a community of over 2300 Volunteers. Um, nobody gets paid to do this. If advocates meet other advocates for commercial gain, that's fantastic. Yeah. In fact, um, uh, three uh, women from the Women in Tech group got together and launched a business called FinTech Circle. So we've actually created a business from within TLA, which is which is really nice. And I think it's those types of stories that I like to share. Look, there should be commercial benefit and gain that comes from this, and being a private sector-led group, that's really important. But at the same time. You know, these are the, the leaders with the ideas, these are the investors with the funding that are ultimately going to make this happen. So the government can promote, the government can make policies that enable this to happen, but ultimately we as a community are the ones who are going to drive this and make it really, really come to life.
0: It is it's, it's, it's extremely refreshing as opposed to thinking that the government must do everything. It's more like, well, we should take things into our own hands.
1: Yeah.
0: With, there's, there's much to be said for thinking that the economy is run by cities, not by the government. At least mm-hmm. that's where things are happening and that mayors like Bloomberg, who uh, really show sort of a, a CEO mentality to running a city. Yes. So, I mean, you chose, you're an American living in London. Yes. And you chose London. So, and how do you sort of, when someone says, well, hey, what about Manchester? What about Newcastle? Hey, yeah. what about me?
1: Brighton. Yes. And, and, and I'm very open to, to having those discussions. In fact, I'm going up to Manchester uh, in January. Um, I've been talking with uh, the woman who runs Tech North, which is part of the Tech City UK organization. And we were connected. Actually, it came through via Twitter. Uh, where some people were watching what we were doing in London with our events and saying, hey, we should be doing something like this in Manchester. So Claire Braithwaite and I, Claire runs Tech North, and I connected. We had a great discussion. We then hooked in Central Working, which has a a facility in Manchester. And we said, let's bring together a group of leaders from across the north of England on the state in January and see if we can launch Tech North Advocates. And I think if that happens, Minter, then I think you're going to see other communities across the UK do this. I mean, you know, a couple couple of weeks ago, we launched Tech Nordic Advocates out of Copenhagen covering, you know, the five Scandi markets and the three Baltic markets. You know, we've got a Bangalore working group. We've launched a TLA China working group. And a bunch of us are going to Beijing uh, in January as well. So, You know, we can touch communities in this way. But to your point, I think it could be cities or maybe it's regions. Um, We're seeing the emergence of tech hubs in cities like London, like Berlin, like Paris, like Amsterdam, Copenhagen, Stockholm. You know, not to mention what we see across North America and going out to Asia and even now in Africa. uh, We've got a group of advocates wanting to create a Tech London Advocates Africa group. It's happening everywhere. Um, and, And from my point of view, how we connect with those cities and their tech hubs is really, really important because as the businesses, say, in Bangalore look to expand beyond, you know, we want to welcome them to London. And there are organizations that can help them with the logistics of setting up a bank account and all that kind of stuff. But they are then welcomed into a ready-made network and community of private sector leaders like them. And and I've seen this time and time again. We've had advocates from South Africa, from Lithuania, from France, and from other nations from the U.S. come into TLA. And right away, I try and get them into at least one of the working groups so that they feel like they are with like-minded people dealing with similar types of issues as a a startup or as a scale-up based in London.
0: So... You know, I, I, I'm a member, and I've been a member of many other sort of associations. And the, the challenge as you grow is the sort of keeping that like mindedness, or at least the uh, sense of membership, as things get grow and you have their their own. They take on their own lives. Yes. So, I have two questions: How do you measure success? Mm-hmm. And two, how do you expect to manage growth in this regard? So, is there is there a principle of culling in your mind? How do you think it's going to go?
1: No, and maybe I'll will touch on that second point, and then I'll come back to the to the first. Um, this group is open to anyone, and I pride. I pride myself on the level of diversity that is in this group. You know, we have big corporate CEOs. We have some high-profile founders. We have some amazing investors. We have teachers. We have students. We have journalists. We have marketeers. We have lawyers. We have all kinds of people from all walks of life in this group. And to me, that is the strength in this group. So there is no culling. Where we try and keep the the excitement and the momentum going is twofold. One is through the working group. So, you know, 2,300, as it stands today, is a very large group. But the working groups are smaller. Well, some are actually getting pretty large. So women in tech and our cyber tech groups are our largest groups. They have over 300 in each. But last week, the law tech group got started, and there's 15 advocates in that, very passionate, for example, about creating a law tech agenda. The China group, just getting started, has got about 25 in it, but they're all hugely passionate about how do we better connect London tech to what's going on in China. So that's where common agendas can come together. and. Yeah, I just spoke to the woman who runs the clean tech group this afternoon. Sustain my my role now is how do I help some of those leaders keep the momentum going in those working groups, um, and then bringing the group together in London uh, twice a year for advocates to meet other advocates is really really important. Where the enthusiasm, the passion just just comes together. So we had over five hundred advocates uh, back in October at a venue in Olympic Park called Here East. And gosh, the, the the enthusiasm in the room was just incredible. So that also feeds on itself where people leave that and say, I really like being part of this group. It gets stuff done and they start connecting and then come back to me and say, I want to introduce so-and-so. So that's great. In terms of the measures of success, I guess there's there's a few in my mind. One is you know, does this group continue to grow in size and scale? Do the working groups actually get tangible things done that we can look at and say, yeah, we played a key role in doing that? Um, I also look at, and and I I have a PR agency that I work with called Seven Hills. You know, how are we doing in terms of getting our voice out to the media? And they help me to track, you know, the, the, the pieces that we have in online, in the newspapers, you know, the television broadcasts, and that's really important, too, because it comes back to how do we speak with a consistent voice about London tech? And I know if we're getting our message out into the media, in addition to what's happening across the organization, that's really important to me. And you know, as more and more advocates come into the group or I get invited to uh, represent tech London advocates at different events and organizations – that that's symbolic for me that says I think we're make I think we're breaking through. Um, six months ago I was invited to Berlin to address the German Economic Council. Which is a, a, an NGO um, affiliated with one of the leading uh, political parties in in Germany, and they wanted to hear the story of London Tech and Tech London advocates. And you know, here I am sitting on a very small panel with 700 delegates in the room, and I thought, well, this is another interesting measure for me that people want to hear what we're doing. They want to learn our story, um, you know, and we're not afraid to say the challenges and the problems that we have too. You know, shortage of talent is is our number one issue across the startups and scale-ups in London. What are we doing about it to address it? So it, it works on a few different levels. Mm-hmm. Can we get stuff done? Are we getting our message out? Does the group keep bringing in more and more interesting and diverse advocates? And... And frankly, am I having fun with this? Are we having fun with this? And I think most do say that they really enjoy being part of the group.
0: So, Russ, uh, you have these; these are a number of these streams. you are just learning about the law, the law tech. There's clean tech, and so on. The one that um, is, strikes me of particular interest uh, is a topic that I, I keep on sort of trying to put my nose into, and okay. um, and it's and it's about women in tech. So, just yes. the background is that I, my women, uh, my minor at university was women's studies. I'm speaking uh, in front of a group of women on uh, Thursday night in Paris, and um, and the, the question I ask is: What are the arguments for promoting and persuading people to have more women in tech? Mm-hmm. What
1: do you think? I think I think if you look at what this group has done, and we, we we've done a lot of things, you know, particularly during London Technology Week a few weeks ago. One, I think getting the message out that particularly in the technology sector, it is hugely gender imbalanced, that, you know, 80%, probably 85% of the sector is made up of men. And if you look at that and say, you know, but who are consumers uh, and users of technology? Well, it's not just men, it's women You know, women use smartphones, they use apps, they engage in technology all the time. So to be underrepresented in the sector that's building world-leading products and technologies, I think is a huge mistake and a mistake for many organizations. I also think that, you know, women bring a different mindset into businesses and organizations. Um, You know, I've worked with many brilliant women um, over the years in many different organizations. Um, Women who are engineers and scientists, they, they bring a unique mindset that many businesses will miss out on. So I think we have to say, look if we don't bring more women into the sector, we're not going to build the best products and services that that tech can offer. Um, Companies are going to miss out in terms of their organizational dynamic and how they how they manage things. You know, there's a lot of research that says those companies that have more women on their management team and their boards are more profitable. So all of the facts and figures say we should be doing this and this is the right thing to do from a moral point of view. Um, I'm actually embarrassed to say, look, I do a lot in the technology sector and we, we don't have enough women in the sector. Ironically, you know, we also have a sector that is, drawing out for world-leading talent. Well, let's nurture and develop and, and, and interest more women to come into the sector. There, there's a solution that, it, that is out there. And um, I also think that, you know, and, and some of the women in tech group uh, leaders that I talked to don't always feel comfortable with this, but when we were in, in June at, during London Technology Week, Martha Lane Fox, Baroness Lane Fox, hosted a TLA Women in Tech event at the House of Lords. And I remember, I didn't speak out till the very end, but I remember saying to the group, look, this has been a brilliant conversation, but I don't want to sit here in two years or three years' time talking about this as an issue. What can we do? What noise can we make? And frankly, how do we get people out of their comfort zones? Not just women, but men have an equal role to play in this in terms of encouraging more women into the sector, mentoring more women, um, and being much more outspoken about the change that's required you know i know that there's a lot of disagreement to this but i actually think having quotas on boards to have a better gender balance is a really good thing um and the same on management teams i know a lot of women do not like that and feel uncomfortable with that but i think radical steps are required because we can't sit here in a few years and still have this as an issue for our for our sector it it which it just wouldn't work
0: yeah it's it, it's one of those tricky or touchy topics, and the way I tend to answer and I tend to agree with you is that I haven't had a better alternative way that's to say sitting back and waiting for it to happen, saying yeah, it's a good idea has not yeah. seen you know haven't seen the really the uh, equality needs to happen yeah. so One of the things um, that, you know, a topic that I'm also very keen on is the composition of board of directors. Yes. And so I I typically sort of strut on about how in – Board of directors for big companies, uh, more diversity is required, uh, whether it's women, but also just diversity of thought, which doesn't have, yes. to, you know, it can be different ways that that can be brought in. In terms of entrepreneurs that you're looking at, what kind of advice or what what maybe are the trends that you think are necessary for, not necessarily trends, but the right type of composition for a board of directors in light of today's sort of ecosystem? How would you advise Entrepreneurs in, in constructing the right composition. Yeah, I think well, and I, I think it, it could be a somewhat different
1: response than to say the the composition for a big multinational uh, company. And I you know I sit on three different boards at the moment, and uh, one is a smaller business, and and two seem to be you know are, are much larger. So for entrepreneurs, the first thing I always say is you know you want to bring on a board that can supplement the skill set that you have and that you also feel comfortable working with because sometimes I've found that entrepreneurs, they like to have a board, but they don't do much with it. They don't leverage it as much as they really should. And if they've got a diverse talent pool sitting on their board, they should be really engaging with that board and really working that board to say, help me grow and expand this business. Um, you know, and they shouldn't just all be you know technology people or engineers. You know, get a good lawyer on your board. You know, get a good numbers person on your board. Get a get a good creative person or a design person on your board. Have that mix of four or five, six different people from all different backgrounds who are going to be looking at what your business is all about and giving you advice and guidance from very different perspectives. Now, you don't have to take that advice. Um, you don't have to adhere to that advice, but it would be shameful if you didn't at least get that advice and, and be mindful that the way you're operating uh, can be perceived to be very differently, uh, perceived to be different from the way your board is looking at your business use and leverage your board as much as possible. And um, I think the smarter entrepreneurs that I've met out there over the years are the ones who really do that and do that very well mm. and, and and appreciate the value that that board brings. Mm. You know, there's always going to be a bit of tension between a board and an entrepreneur. You know, I've been the CEO of, a, of a, a later stage startup and, you know, I had a actually a very large board and, you know, it's hard to interface with them and they all have their own views and opinions. But at the same time, there's a lot of expertise around that table and make sure you you use it to your advantage.
0: Yeah, my friend uh, well, my cousin friend uh, Fabrice Granda over in New York he when I asked her this question he said, "Oh, just get them away. They only interfere."
1: <laughs> <clears throat> what they- well, that's and that's a shame really because that's a that's a missed opportunity for that for that entrepreneur. Um, and you know, if, if that's the kind of relationship then then you know, he doesn't really either need to have a board or should just think very differently that, mm-hmm. you know, the type of board that he has may, may not be very useful. Hmm. And he hasn't constructed the right
0: one. Um, so what, the, other, the last thing I wanted to chat with you about, Russ was, uh, is this notion, because you guys are all about big and small. So, yes. Uh, helping entrepreneurs meet with the big. And, and it, in, you know, there's, in so many discussions that I see and participate in, with regard to big companies, there's this notion of, well, we need to be more innovative. Uh, so, you know, we're really missing the plot. We're not agile enough. Well, these small companies are, are where it's happening, and so they they quickly run, lead, you know, run and say, well, we need we need these small companies thinking. But how do they better integrate? What kinds of thoughts do you see needs to happen in the mindsets of big companies? specifically, in order to help integrate smaller companies' mindset into?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I see a lot of big companies out there all saying the same thing. And I think there there are not many that I've come across that I I think really walk the talk and and truly believe it. And, And the first thing I'd always say is, actually, it always starts at the top. The CEO has to show that he or she truly believes this, and wants to make a difference, and if he or she is doing that, boy, it's funny how that will permeate through the rest of the organization. Mm-hmm. But if the CEO is just giving it a bit of lip service, yeah. it ain't going to happen. And don't waste people's time. Um, yeah, I, I do think that some big companies are, are do mean it when they say we want to embrace that entrepreneurial spirit. We want to get closer to small businesses, but they really struggle to understand how to do it. Um, I think, you know, for example, I, I have said that. Barclays has done, I think a good job over the past couple of years in setting up their accelerators. Um, a gentleman called Derek White, who's their chief customer officer, uh, came to me over a couple of years ago and said, can I meet with a few advocates? We need to be better at working with entrepreneurs. And he said, we do not have an idea about how to do this. So we spent some time with him. They did a big event uh, in East London. And since then, I think they've done a terrific job. You know, They've set up the Barclays Accelerator in Whitechapel. They've got one in New York now. Um, they're looking to set them up around the world. And I think they've really embraced it from the top of the organization, um, and I think they're a good model for people for people to use. So, what I try and do is find those large organizations that I think are not just giving it lip service, but really demonstrating how they're trying to bring that mindset closer into their organization particularly at the at the top of the organization um you know i had a great conversation with some of the leaders at his cox insurance they know that insurance is ripe for disruption um and so they're very very eager to work with tech london advocates to meet many of these startups and scallops and so i and others have been helping them to get closer to what's going on here i mean i always have said it's a real win for big and small to come together you know Big companies can get the benefit of the entrepreneurial inside experience, et cetera. But for small companies, they can see and get access to the larger company uh, support, resources, customer base. Many startups and scale-ups are so eager to get large customer access to large customers that that's the win-win that's on the table. So um, – sadly i don't see enough of it working very successfully but that's something that we'll have to work harder at all
0: right well so i'll try to dig one more second back in and latch into this idea of barclays and what they're doing by the way that was my, my the last uh, guest on the show was the head of hr digital transformation at barclays okay so i'm sure michael will be awfully interested um so we're they, creating these accelerators, which many companies are doing. Yes. But what particularly, I mean, so outside of the fact that the big boss gets it, and wants it, is going to make for a uh, an adherence, an adhesion that's going to make it work.
1: Yes. I think when, when those accelerators and incubators get set up, then the next question for me becomes, you know, well, once, once it's embraced at the top, how do they bring the rest of the organization closer to the incubator or the accelerator? I mean, I go back to when I was, oh well, gosh, it was seven, eight years ago. I was the global innovation director for Telefonica. And we set up incubators and we set up a, a corporate venturing fund. And I always said, look, two things whenever we were making a strategic investment in a startup, I always wanted to have at least one of the 24 operating businesses in the Telefonica Corporation sponsor that that, that startup or business. Because I knew if they were interested in it, they would work with that startup and there would be that win-win happening at that level. Um, and I would never push the button on the investment in that startup unless I had somebody fully signed up on board. And in terms of the incubators that we set up, um, it was always ring-fenced. It was in the operating business. And I felt that was really important so that the operating business could own and manage that incubator. But the budget was ring-fenced. The team was ring-fenced because, as you know, organizations chop and change budgets and org structures, yeah. gosh, every other month it seems like. And I didn't want those incubators to be impacted by it. But to me, the, the whole theory behind doing both of those things was the operating business needs to be as close as physically possible to what's going on with the entrepreneurs, with the startups and that whole mentality, because then it will be infectious and contagious. Um, If it's just completely cut off and the the day-to-day operating business is kept far away from the incubator or the accelerator, well how is that going to help the innovation of the larger organization bringing them closely together regular meetings maybe even getting the operating business leaders from the operating business to go and and be mentors and advisors within the incubator and vice versa getting a couple of the entrepreneurs to be advisory members to that operating business that cross-pollination is what's going to make it happen so Get the endorsement from the top, get your leaders at the top, and then get the cross-pollination uh, between the operating businesses and the entrepreneurial units to happen. Yeah. That's how I see it working. And in the best cases, that's usually what happens. I think,
0: and then the ring fencing, so they're not quite as contaminated by the politics. And
1: the- yeah, you've got to keep the, the the for the for the incubators for the startup environment. You want to get them, leave them alone to let them get on and run their business. And if they're being sucked into org structure changes and reforecasts every two months, they're not going to be able to do what they need to do, which is come up with the next great product or service and drive that whole innovation agenda.
0: Beautiful. Hey, Russ, I've really enjoyed this show. Thanks for Likewise, coming on. Likewise. Thank you. Thank um, you for having what's, me. What's the best way for somebody to connect with you or follow you, or if they want to join the, uh, the, the Tech London Advocates? Yes. The well,
1: there is, a, there is a tab on the website, uh, the Advocates tab, which is how to become a Tech London Advocate. The, the main message is every advocate is listed on the website. Um, the group is free and open to join, but you come in through an advocate introduction. So advocates introduce advocates, a legacy of my days at Skype and the whole use of the network effects. Mm-hmm. Um, so find an advocate, say you're interested in, in becoming a tech London advocate, and then have that advocate e-introduce us, and they're in. Simple as that. And to, to connect with you, what's the best way to follow you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at at Rush Shaw one You can connect with me on LinkedIn as well. Super. Hey, listen, I know you're about to go
0: and do some cooking, so thanks for coming <laughs> on the show, Russ. Talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks,
1: Minta. That was great. Thanks, very much.
0: thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minta Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs' painted fingers.
2: Oh, fill me with all your colors, any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of self-secure. The